Outside of the Supreme Court on Monday night, a crowd was gathering. Someone had leaked a draft of a court opinion to the news outlet Politico. And according to that draft, the Supreme Court had voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark case that guarantees a constitutional right to abortion. Our executive producer, Maggie Penman, was there. It's 11.15 p.m. and the crowd outside the court has just gotten bigger and louder over the last half hour. When I first got here, there were people who were here to celebrate. Anti-abortion activists chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Roe v. Wade has got to go. It's, it's emotional for a lot of them who have been fighting for life for decades. But they have been outnumbered and drowned out by the pro-choice activists who are chanting things like my body, my choice, and abortion is health care. I immediately was reminded that elections have consequences. The time to stop this was, of course, in 2016. People didn't show up, unfortunately, in the numbers that we needed. There are other activists who are here holding candles and looking at the court quietly and protesting in a different way. Uh, I talked to one of them. Her name is Sarah. And she told me she lost her mom in the last year and that... It's scary to face this without her mom. I'm not animated by what happened. I am deflated by what happened. I feel like in a way we've failed. I think think eventually I have to move past that, Um, but I'm not there yet. I'm still feeling like a failure. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 3rd. Today, we dig into the details of this leaked draft and how it could reverse 50 years of abortion access in the U.S. Then, later in the show, we hear how this could play out in states across the country, including in blue states. On Tuesday, Chief Justice John Roberts confirmed the authenticity of this draft opinion. He made it clear that this was not the final draft and that they would be investigating the source of the leak. Roberts called it, quote, a betrayal of the confidences of the court intended to undermine the integrity of its operations. Yes, it's extremely unusual to see something like this while the court is still deliberating a case. That's Bob Barnes. He covers the Supreme Court for The Post. And according to Bob, this moment was so shocking because we never see this kind of breach from inside the court. We have had reporting after the fact about, for instance, votes changing or a justice sort of losing a majority opinion while he or she was writing it. And justices themselves have talked about what's happened in previous cases. But to see a whole draft opinion is, you know, practically unprecedented. And it's a real shock to the system and the way the court usually operates. But just to be clear, I mean, this is still a draft. And when would we theoretically be getting the final opinion of what justices here had decided? Well, we weren't expecting anything until the end of June, the beginning of July. This is the most important case on the court's agenda, and those usually come at the very end of their work. But as you say, it is a draft. 
if there was a five to four vote or or there was a vote that showed five members were ready to take this step, then one of the justices would start drafting an opinion that gives their reasoning. There's been some reporting that these other justices have signed on to this opinion, but I don't see any evidence of that. What you see instead is one of the justices trying to provide an explanation to the country of why the court was taking this step at this time. And that doesn't mean it will be a final decision. So keeping that in mind, the fact that this isn't a final decision, I mean, it does look like the court is gearing up to overturn Roe v. Wade. So what exactly does that mean? Like, what what does it mean to overturn Roe v. Wade? What are the implications of that? Well, the implications are huge. There are a number of states that already have laws on the books, so-called trigger laws, that say if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion would be banned in those states. It almost certainly means that abortion rights would be cut back in large areas of the South and the Midwest of the United States. It it would be uh, a sea change in the way abortion is regulated uh, in this country, returning it to state control and state legislature's Mm. control, which would mean generally that blue states will offer abortion and that red states could go so far as to not only restrict abortion, but say that it's not allowed within its borders. So let's talk a little bit about what is exactly inside this draft opinion. It was written by Justice Samuel Alito. Tell me what that signifies. Tell me why that is important. Well, he's one of the senior conservatives. If he was assigned the opinion, it means that Justice Clarence Thomas would have given it to him because under that scenario, uh, Thomas would have been the senior member of the court if the chief was not a part of the majority. Alito has never voted against an abortion restriction that has come before the Supreme Court. And, you know, he is seen as one of the members of the court on the issue. So that could be one illustrative of his seniority on the court. It could also be a reason to think that this draft opinion might not survive exactly the way he has written it, because, as I say, he is more hardline on the issue than perhaps some of the other justices are. Robert, I know you and I have had conversations about the arguments that have been presented to the court on why some people believe Roe v. Wade needed to be overturned, and there are a lot of different arguments. So from what you've seen in this draft opinion, what are the arguments that kind of took hold, at least with Alito or potentially with some of the other justices who might vote in the majority here? I mean, what's the what's the rationale that they're seeing make sense for why Roe v. Wade should no longer exist? Well, it's a very familiar argument that has been around ever since Roe was first decided in the 1970s, which is that the Constitution is simply silent on the question of abortion and that there is no constitutional right to it, despite what uh, courts have found in the past. And so it is you know, not an unusual or unique criticism of it. It's one that has been made 
ever since Roe was decided, but it is one that has never sort of taken root because the court was never quite this conservative. Now, interestingly, there was a five to four vote in 1992 to overturn Roe, a preliminary vote just like this one is reported to be, and that was in the follow-up case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. But at the last minute, three justices and on the conservative side, Tony Kennedy, David Souter, and Sandra Day O'Connor came up with a middle ground saying that Roe should not be overturned, but that the right should be restricted. And that carried the day in that important decision. It was thought that, or it was hoped, I should say, in that decision that this would be a compromise that the country could live with. And critics of both Roe and the Casey decision say it's clear just how wrong uh, that decision was because it hasn't quelled the unrest and the divide mm. over this issue. So I want to go back to that argument that the Constitution makes no mention of abortion um, is what has been argued before the court and it seems to be uh, what's being presented in this draft opinion. And in some ways, that's right, right? Like the U.S. Constitution does not talk about abortion specifically. So what has been the argument against that? Like, what has been the argument that the Constitution does, in fact, protect the right to get an abortion in America? Well, the argument is that the Constitution doesn't have to list every right that Americans have. It, it can't do that. And so that there are some rights, a, a right to privacy, a right to due process, a right to liberty, that are, you know, there in the Constitution without being specific about them. And that's what courts have decided in the past about abortion, about contraception, about the fundamental right to marriage that are not specifically listed in the Constitution, but are part of our greater understanding of what the Constitution provides to an individual. So just to be clear, I mean, should people be worried that something like same-sex marriage, that pivotal ruling, that that could be next on the chopping block to be rolled back, despite the fact that this opinion says that it's only talking about abortion? The draft that was published tries to address that. It says uh, very specifically this is only about abortion. Abortion is unique in this area. And this doesn't call into question any of those other rights. But I think what this shows is that this is a, a court that is different, that is much more conservative, uh, and that is willing to move quickly, willing to change precedent, uh, willing to take on uh, things that previous courts have decided very quickly. I think that it would sort of open up the idea that this is a court that is willing to take a fresh look at a lot of things that have been long decided or, you know, perhaps not that long decided. When we think about the fact that this draft opinion was leaked in a way that is so abnormal for how the court operates, like, why do you think it happened? What are the potential rationales here for someone in the court to put this draft opinion out now? You know, I've seen all sorts of theories about that. And so it's awfully hard to say 
because we don't know anything more than this, why it happened, why this public specific publication uh, was chosen, got this information. I mean, you can argue that liberals wanted to get it out there to show the sort of real threat that is out there to Roe. You could argue that conservatives wanted it out there to put these five conservative justices sort of on record and make it difficult for them to go back on their decision before the final decision comes out. You know, it's a it's a tough one. And you could sort of make arguments all around for who it helps or hurts. You know, there's also an interesting push now by some on the right for the court to act quickly, put out some sort of opinion even before uh, dissents might be ready and say, you know, we're upholding the Mississippi law, details to follow, (laughs) dissents to follow. That would be an extremely unusual thing for the Supreme Court to do. You know, we're a little bit in uncharted territory here because we've never had an incident exactly like this as far as I know, or at least in modern Supreme Court history. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this all to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bob Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. After the break, we hear from anti-abortion activists who've been working toward this day for decades. There are children who are going to be alive because of this decision. And from abortion providers who are bracing themselves for what comes next. I'm in fix-it mode. I'm in like, okay, so what do we need to do to make sure I can do as much as I can before this happens? We'll be right back. So, Caroline Kitchener, you cover abortion for The Post, and we have been talking about this draft opinion from the Supreme Court that was leaked, that if it's an an indication of the final version, would overturn Roe v. Wade. We heard reactions at the beginning of today's show from outside the Supreme Court, but I'm wondering what has been the wider reaction that you have been hearing so far? I think from both sides, just utter shock. As soon as I saw this story last night, I immediately got on the phone with as many of my sources on both sides of this issue that I could talk with. And especially at the beginning, especially in that first hour, I would call and I would ask, you know, what is your initial response? What's your kind of gut reaction to this? And there would be silence and more silence. And on both sides, people just kept saying, I don't know what to say. You know, what can you say? I don't know. I'm speechless just again and again. I think that was the initial reaction, both because of the gravity and sort of earth-shaking nature of this opinion of just how far it goes, 
and also because of the way that it came down. This is not a final draft. Um, This is an initial draft, but no one expected this to come through the media and be leaked. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, almost unprecedented. So, Caroline, who are some of the people that you've been talking to? So one of the first people that I called was Alan Braid. Hello, I guess I know why you're calling. (laughs) He is an abortion provider in Texas and Oklahoma who has been doing this for many, many years. He, you know, decided to get into this work because he was a doctor before Roe, and he remembers seeing multiple women who died from botched abortions. So I knew that he was one of the first people that I wanted to talk to. It's going to mean that women from half of this country will live in a state that forces them to give birth or travel to another state. I mean, you know, that's the way it was in 1972. Maybe this is a good thing that this draft came out. Maybe between now and June, you know, women will burn down the Supreme Court. I just don't know. But, you know, life in this country will be completely different. What about people who are on the side against access to abortion? I mean, what did they have to say about this decision and how suddenly it came out? So I talked with Kristen Hawkins, who is the president of Students for Life, which is one of the biggest anti-abortion groups. You have five minutes. No, 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 it's fine. I stopped my crying. It's all good. I am emotionally put together. You know, she was just thrilled and... You know, I I talked to other anti-abortion advocates last night who felt the same way. Wonderful. I mean, this is what we've been arguing for, you know, for 50 years. That this was an egregiously wrong, wrongly decided decision in 1973. Uh, And this is the court attempting to right its wrongs. And I think to read that opinion and see the fruition of all of those years of efforts just it was emotional for them if this is a fast decision if the court comes out the entire movement and the entire thing the entire strategy of our movement you know shifts and it shifts to what we've been talking about for 16 years which is a, a post roe versus wade america and what that will look like and what will need to be done state by state by state um to protect women and children. So for us, it's not just like, oh, score one for the the, the pro-life movement. It's like, no, there are children who are going to be alive because of this decision. I don't don't, don't know how you like top anything, (laughs) like greater than like ending a war that, you know, or stopping nuclear war, you know, like, I mean, like, Where else do you have the opportunity to save so many lives? So, Caroline, 
I want to talk a little bit more about how this could all play out. I know that you've been covering how abortion access has been restricted on the state level across America as people have anticipated a decision like this coming down. How does reversing or restricting Roe v. Wade impact laws on the state level? And and what happens in states across the country if this decision does become final? So I think that there will be a couple of waves of laws that we will see. The first big bucket that I think you're going to hear a lot about in the next couple of days are trigger bans. So mm. those are laws that have passed in 13 states so far that will take effect as soon as Roe v. Wade is officially overturned that would completely ban abortion within the confines of that state. So, you know, that, that that's a lot of states where, you know, right away, right off the bat, abortion is going to be totally gone. There are a couple of other buckets of laws that I'll be watching really closely. Um, there are a couple of states that still have bans from pre-Roe v. Wade that are still on the books that have never been kind of officially taken off the books and could be brought back to life. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a couple of other states, too, that have other very restrictive bans that had been blocked by the courts because they were clearly unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade. For example, Georgia has a six-week ban that moved through the courts and has stalled. And laws like that could also come back to life if we see this decision kind of come to fruition in the way that it looks like it will. And what kind of effect does this have on states where there are laws protecting abortion? And I would imagine that people will be looking to those states to help provide care for those who will no longer be able to get it if this decision becomes final. We've seen a wave of Democrat-led states just, you know, I mean, over the last couple of years, but especially in the last couple of months, passing all sorts of different kinds of protections to help in this exact scenario, to help, you know, as many patients as possible who are not able to get care in anti-abortion states come to their states to access abortion. So um, one state I want to call out, because this just happened on Friday, is Connecticut passed a really sweeping abortion rights law that offers, you know, a a whole variety of legal protections for patients who are traveling to Connecticut and for providers. Because one other trend that we've seen, started to see, is anti-abortion lawmakers in red states trying to pass laws that, that, that could stop people from crossing state lines for abortions. Hmm. So, so tell me about how all of this is is affecting what abortion providers are doing on the ground. Like, how has this already started to change their jobs or, or their plans for the coming days and weeks? So I spoke with Dr. Leila Zahedi, who is a high-risk obstetrician who provides abortions in Tennessee. And she talked about what's next for her as a provider. Like, I... Like, this is what we've been preparing for, and yet I still am like, what? How? How many patients are going to die? And how many extra days in June do I need to go so that we can, like, be there until the doors have to close? It's terrifying. You know, she said... If this happens, you know, she's going to go to Illinois. She's going to go to Colorado because... 
she won't be able to provide abortions in Tennessee anymore. People are going to come in having tried to self-manage. We're going to be in a world of hurt. And people are going to leave states, trigger ban states, and then patients are just going to be left with nothing. One thing that is really significant about the way that this news came out is that before this happened, abortion providers in all of those trigger ban states especially thought that they were going to have no notice. They thought that they were going to get this decision. They didn't know, you know, no one knew sort of what day that decision would come down and, you know, they would have to immediately stop providing care. Because it's happened in this way, they have some lead time. So I was talking with a provider last night who was telling me, you know, she wants to try to go to her clinic as many days as possible in between now and the end of June when many believe the decision will officially come down so that she can, you know, provide abortions for as many patients as possible. So you're, you're I think, going to see a lot of clinics trying to you know, spring into action and do as much as they can while abortion is still legal in their state. And another thing that we're hearing from providers is that they're already being inundated with patients who are calling and asking, is this still legal? Because the way that it's been reported, you know, the headlines a lot of people see on the news, you know, Roe v. Wade overturned, and they assume that that means that abortion is instantly gone. Um, when, of course, in fact, this is a draft of an opinion. I just spoke with somebody who provides abortions in Oklahoma, and and she was saying that uh, they were getting those kinds of calls and and trying to figure out how to how to best get the message out there that no, you know, there there still is some time. Who are they most worried about not being able to get access to abortions um, if this decision goes into effect? I mean, what are the communities of people that they feel will just not be able to to get an abortion or won't be able to get to a blue state to to have an abortion done? Well, that's exactly right, Martine. It's the people who can't travel. Abortion bans disproportionately impact low-income women, women of color. It's not easy to travel all the way to a blue state, especially in these swaths of the South and Midwest where, you know, these trigger ban states are congregated. It's, you know, we're, we're talking about really long distances that people have to travel, you know, extremely expensive transportation costs, lodging costs, cost of child care. And for a lot of people, they just, you know, they... They can't afford to to take that kind of time off work. So this absolutely does not affect all communities in the same way. Though at the same time, Caroline, you've been reporting on some of the longer term potential implications of this. And I know that so many people are fearful of this world where abortion access is split along red and blue lines um, and that only half the country has access to abortions, but that there have also been efforts to use a Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade as an opportunity to outlaw abortion nationally, which I think, I mean, I don't think I realized was even on the table, really. Yeah, I, I reported a story out 
about the internal plans in the anti-abortion movement to take this strategy national. You know, up until this point, abortion as an issue has really played out in the states. Um, that's where we see the movement in in one direction or the other. But you know, what we're seeing now is top anti-abortion leaders having, you know, serious sit-down meetings with senators, with uh, members of Congress to talk about a nationwide abortion ban. Because I think, you know, what you have to understand is people within the anti-abortion movement who have been fighting their whole lives for this, they, they believe that abortion is murder and they're not going to be content with abortion just being banned in Republican-led states. They want Mm. to see it banned everywhere. So that's something that I think we're going to be hearing a lot more discussion about in the months to come. And I know it's hard to prognosticate these things, but I mean, is that... Could that really happen? I mean, is there a world where abortion could be outlawed in California or New York because of a federal ban? I mean, it would be extremely difficult to do, right? Um, You would need, under the current Senate rules, um, which could potentially change, you would need 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. You would also need a Republican president in place. So, you know, at the very earliest, you know, we're talking about a couple of years down the line. But, you know, the... This movement, reporting on it, reporting on the anti-abortion movement, I've just been extremely struck again and again by how well organized they are and how energized they are. And at this point, it's really hard to know what to expect. And for abortion rights advocates, how are they mobilizing in this moment? So what I heard from Kelly Robinson of Planned Parenthood last night is that large-scale mobilization efforts are already underway. They are calling for a nationwide protest, nationwide activism at 5 p.m. today. They are urging people who care about abortion rights to show up at federal buildings across the country, state houses, courthouses, town squares, just get out there and show people that this is not okay. That's what they're saying. So, you know, the way that they're talking about it is, you know, if we make enough noise and show people that this is not okay, the door still could be open for justices to change their mind and this decision to change. Now, in my opinion, that is extremely unlikely, but that's what they're saying. Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you, Martine. Caroline Kitchener is a national political reporter for The Post covering abortion. This story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky. On Tuesday, President Biden said it would be, quote, a radical decision for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. He urged Congress to pass a law protecting the right to abortion nationally. But it's doubtful whether a law like that could pass a divided Senate without eliminating the filibuster. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and Rennie Svernovsky. It was edited by Lexi Diao with help from Robin Amer and Maggie Penman. 
I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.